Um, so my name is Marianne Della Torre. Um, I'm from San Diego, California, specifically National City, which is a, you know, working class community of Filipinos and Latinos. Come from a military family, and and really proud to say that um, my mother is a Navy uh, veteran, and my dad, um, you know, he worked as a maintenance worker at the military housing complex. So a lot of my life has been shaped by the military, um, especially with moving around. I'm also a Filipino American, and both my parents are immigrants. Um, so I have that perspective, and I carry it along with me everywhere I go. And then, you know, grew up in San Diego, went to school in San Diego because my mother was uh, ill at the time and still is. Um, and now I get to come back full circle, right, um, into the Elizabeth Dole Foundation serving military and veteran caregivers similar to myself. You mentioned, you know, I know you work for EDF, so as the Caregiver Community Program Coordinator. So great big long title. What does that basically allow you to do? Yeah, so I manage our online peer support community. We are a mighty group of up to 3,000 caregivers I'm now on Facebook. So I am behind a lot of the content creation strategy in addition to just moderating um, the group to make sure that it stays a supportive and positive environment. That's wonderful. And you had mentioned that your mom and dad were first generation. Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that illuminates a wide range of challenges and triumphs our military-connected kids experience. My name is Susan Sellers, and I'll be your host for today. This program is powered in part by Wounded Warrior Project to honor, empower, post-9-11 injured service members, veterans, and their families. Joining us today is Marianne Del Toro, who's going to talk about her journey from being a hidden helper to transitioning into an adult caregiver. Marianne, thanks so much for coming on the show. Would you mind sharing just a little bit about yourself? Were you the first generation to attend college or go to school after high school? I would say so, given the fact that my my mother had a, a, her college degree back in the Philippines, but it wasn't accredited here. Um, right. But she, you know, ended up, you know, doing an online college degree. So she does have her master's, I'll say that. But in terms of like the first generation college experience on the university, I share much of that and identify with it. Okay, wonderful. So you had mentioned that you are currently the caregiver for your mom. When did that role begin for you? Yeah, no, thank you for asking. Um, so I was 11 years old um, when my mother came back from Iraq. And so she had been deployed for about seven months, I remember. And she came back with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. At the time, we didn't know that. Um, so we were going through her symptoms of insomnia, nightmares, her recalling much of those memories, flashbacks from war. Um, and then I think, you know, gradually it turned into service-connected um, injuries for, for physical and so she ended up having a bunch of surgeries, especially while I was in high school and, and in college. Um, you know, to the point now she's is aging and she's a little she's a lot more frail with um, you know, more health conditions. So um the care is ongoing for me since age eleven. And I certainly understand the older element of our parents transitioning and becoming more seasoned. My dad actually had a stroke this past weekend, and so I've recognized the need that I'm going to have to 
to step in a little bit more and, and definitely have some more oversight into his care moving forward. And it's an interesting transition in terms of the parental dynamic that you have. And it sounds like you may have experienced that even earlier, you know, at age 11, but I'm sure that it continued to evolve, you know, does it get a little blurred between who's the parent, who's the child? Yeah, I, you know, um, thank you for sharing that. And and yeah, it gets. I think it gets more real in terms of what the dynamics look like. Often enough, I, it becomes a little switch in terms of, uh, especially um, emotional support, right? Um, so I think from a young age, I've had to, you know, develop emotional intelligence faster then, you know, my, my younger counterparts who were able to, you know, not think as, <laughs> as like critically or emotionally. Um, so I think those are switch dynamics. Also, you know, driving, you know, to appointments, you know, as a kid, um, that was my driving lessons to the VA. It's, it's aspects like that I, I think about and I'm like, wow, those, those roles were pretty switched, you know? Exactly. But that was your reality. So, you know, it, I'm sure you wouldn't have it any other way. But it is, it is something to reflect upon on times because it is unique compared to a lot of your peers, to, you know, even peers within the military community itself. So I'm curious, what did you decide to go study at school? Yeah, so I decided to go study um, political science um, and ethnic studies with a specialization in Asian American studies. So I, you know, and interestingly enough, my... Um, my personal statement was really um, motivated by my mom's uh, experiences coming back from war. Um, and so I I really thought I was going to go in um, being a human rights, uh, you know, attorney and thinking about, you know, how to protect people from the impacts of war. Um, and so I guess I do it in another way now. Um, right. And it's more through, you know, the emotional support post-war. And so at what point did you recognize that your life was going to go in a different direction? I think high school and college. I think by the end of high school, I was figuring out where I wanted to go for college, right? And I had always envisioned myself to be, you know, out in New York or, you know, studying abroad, things like that. Um, but unfortunately, you know, my mom at the time, I didn't know if we were going to have her because um, she had some major health uh, conditions around her, her, um, her stomach. And also she was just frail. And so my dad, you know, my dad was also working. We were a working class family. And so I had to, you know, make the decision. They were talking to me and were like, it's, it's best that you stay close um, because in case something happens, you'd be in proximity. And so sure enough, I chose the University of California, San Diego, um, which is conveniently located next to the VA. And, uh, you know, I think that's definitely what speared my, you know, perception of having to choose family um, first. But again, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think, you know, I, I still think by choosing family, I chose myself because those are my values. So I, I think, you know, to answer your question, it was back in high school, um, early college. That's an incredible answer. By by choosing families, stuck to your values and ultimately what was important to you, which is your family and that connection to it. Because as you mentioned earlier, you identify as Filipino American. In fact, 
you know, your focus at school at one point was going to be in that particular area. So I think that's really neat. And I think it's a testament to how you were raised and and who you become um, as a young adult. It can be a challenge finding that balance of your cultural expectations and who you want to be as an individual, though, too. Right. And I think with first generation kids who descend from immigrant parents or, you know, grandparents, I think the expectations are for us a a little difficult to manage because it's blurry. Because at the same time, we're we're so I I don't want to say Americanized, but we're so, you know, um, exposed to individualist, you know, expectations and culture. We have our own career. We're working. We're trying to balance that. Um, so then again, it, it becomes like, well, how do we manage, you know, caregiving this expectation that is traditional of us um, to care for our parents to, you know, make sure that they are in a home, right, for with us, one of us, right? Um, so I think also in the Philippines, I can, you know, say that it's a nuclear family, you know, household, you grow up with your grandparents, I'm in the next room, right? And it's just so on your grandkids, you know, so it's, it's never really leaving home for American culture, we're encouraged to leave home, right? So it's, so how do you manage and, you know, balance that, right? And I never left home, right? How do I think about managing that, right? Am I okay with that? Um, For other people, it's not. Um, For me, I'm, you know, okay with it, but I'm able to, you know, step away, have my freedom through, through other aspects like traveling. What do you think is important when you hear the concept of hidden helpers What do you think is important for people to understand? That's a very good question and requires a little bit uh, thinking on my end. Um, But I think whenever I think about hidden helpers, I think it's the fact that we exist. Um, You know, we're right beneath your noses. Um, We're we're doing work in our homes. We may not tell you um, that we're doing the work. I think a lot of times I kept my back, my stories, you know, hidden from friends and even family. And so we're, we're here, we exist, and, you know, it's always good to have, you know, that check-in. How are you? How are you doing, Gabe? Honestly, how are you, you know? So I would say, you know, we exist. So I'm curious, because you're not the first individual I've spoken to that said that they keep or kept a lot of what was going on in the home within the home itself. And I always like to ask, why was that? Why did you decide to not share particularly with maybe your closer friends or even the the school itself? What made you feel like that needed to stay inside the household? I think it was the stigma. Um, And I'll be completely transparent here. You know, I come from a Filipino-American family, um, Filipino-American immigrant family, right? So mental health, especially around PTSD, um, is a very touchy topic in terms of talking about um, the behavioral impacts on the veteran in addition to the family members that, you know, was kept hush-hush since we don't ever talk about mental health in Asian American culture. And, and so that was one of the, you know, reasons why I kept it. And also, I just didn't want to be an extended burden to, you know, friends. And, and I think, you know, they never really, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have understood me anyways. It's like, because I used to, you know, then I'll tell you, I used to go back home every weekend. I lived on the dorms. My best friend, he was like, I, I, why are you, you know, why are you always, you know, going home? Like, we need to, you need to live your first year college experience, right? And, you know, I was like, I got to go home. I, you know, I just got to go. 
And so I, I think there was that, you know, misunderstanding between our experiences and what, you know, my obligations were um, as a young, you know, as a young college student at the time. And then I, I think about it years now when we, and he, and he brought it up, I think most recently, and he was like, why, so why were you always at home? And I explained and he, I think he finally understood years later, right? But at the moment, you know, when you're surrounded by your peers, they're not going to understand. Right. No, and, and you're not the first one to also share that sometimes people said it was just easier because it was such a long and detailed explanation and they were very protective of their parents. They didn't want them judged. And because there is unfortunately still a stigma when it comes to invisible wounds such as PTSD and other mental health challenges, that it was just easier to stay within and that people truly wouldn't understand. So. I'm grateful for individuals like yourself, though, that have recognized the need to share. And you're doing that, you know, not only personally, but you're also doing that through work by supporting other hidden heroes through your job with EDF. So I just, I applaud you for doing that. I definitely think it takes uh, a certain level of courage. I think you bring up an interesting point that I hadn't thought about, about how not only American culture and our stigma surrounding mental health, but also your culture, the Filipino community, the Asian community, that there is a bias when it comes to behavioral health uh, topics, which I had never even considered. But I think that's an, an additional layer that I think people should be aware of for sure. So how did you find balance, or maybe you didn't, but did you find balance while you were in college? If so, how did you you know, how did you find balance trying to get a four-year degree and still being a caregiver? Yeah, no, I appreciate, you know, all of your, your insight and validation. Um, you know, I don't think I found a balance, <laughs> so I'll be honest with you. I think it was a lot of uh, sleepless nights for me, um, in addition to the fact that I was juggling all of the activities, the quarter system at UC San Diego. And, um, you know, at the time I had a, I had a boyfriend who, who also, um, had uh, major mental health issues that I was extending myself as caregiving for at that young age. Um, so I don't think I found that balance until I actually really, you know, postgraduate was able to collect myself and, and be like, okay, I need self-care. I need to rest because burnout was real. Um, so, you know, after four to five years of doing it all, I, at, at the end, I was like, okay, well, I need to focus and on my mental health and myself, because, you know, if that happens, what is it? What did I say about caregivers? Who's going to care for your loved one if you don't care for yourself? Because chronic stress can lead to chronic illness, things like that. Absolutely. It's sort of that, I think that whole analogy of you need to put your oxygen mask on first before you can put the oxygen mask on someone else. So what did you find that helped you? I mean, I understand you said self-care. Was there anything specific that you found really valuable or beneficial in helping you reach those goals of self-care? Yeah, you know, I think I'm I'm really blessed to have a group, good group of friends, even though I was never able to convey or explain, you know, my my situation well to them. I think there was a deeper, you know, understanding of who I 
I am. And I think often enough, um, you know, we're caregivers and another, you know, identity, you know, and I appreciated the fact that they were able to alleviate the caregiver identity by helping me, you know, pave the way into other identities or hobbies that I loved, for instance, like photography or art. So we would go to art museums or you know, we would go to performances or concerts, things like that. So they still helped me remain my age, if that makes sense. Totally. I, I love that you made that distinction and that even though maybe they didn't completely understand, they knew that there was something in addition going on in your family dynamic. But I love that instead of that overtaking who you were, they helped you to anchor to things that you were interested in as an individual to anchor to activities, like you said, photography or just being a college kid and helping you find that fun and joy, um, even with whatever's going on, because I can only imagine that it's very easy, that role of caregiver to overtake your life. So it sounds like you have a pretty incredible group of friends. Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely evolved and you find really good souls out there. So very grateful and humble. We spent 27 years in active duty military. My husband just retired and I can say the success uh, for a large part has to do with the connections that we've made. You know, we have friends for a season, you know, or friends that we consider family. So um, we certainly couldn't have done it for the, this length of time without that kind of support. So the only other question that kind of just popped in my head, that I was curious what you would say, is for those current youth caregivers that are looking at, you know, graduation from high school, they're getting ready to consider the next chapter in their life, what advice would you give them? I think be true to yourself um, in terms of what you see, um, you know, is valuable and needed for yourself. Again, um, caregiving from the minority, you know, viewpoint and and what it means to have the collectivism within our cultures. And again, when we think about self-identification as a caregiver, a lot of us don't see that as um, ourselves as it just because it's just innate um, in our cultures and expected. Um, and I, and I myself, I forgot to mention that I'm an only child, <laughs> so it fell on me, right? And, and also as a woman, right, as a daughter, I think those are those gender dynamics to explore as well and encourage, you know, caregivers of color or from minority backgrounds to identify as caregivers. Because once you identify as a caregiver, the opportunity is open for you. I think, you know, brief. <laughs> I think that's something that I feel like I should have done more was breathe um, and know that things will work out in the end. Didn't think, you know, at the moment in time, these things don't make sense. But, you know, in the end, they do. And I, I go back to my story, right? Having to choose, having to choose the local college over, you know, my dream college. Um, and again, like I said, it, it always works out in the end. Yeah. So who knew even that sacrifice would end up connecting you to a job that it sounds like you absolutely love and feel as if you're supporting the very community that you set out to do, but just in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't, you know, tout enough about our caregiver community and, you know, their strength in addition to their wisdom. Um, that they provide, you know, me, you know, it makes up more spouses than 
than children. Um, but again, I, I appreciate the shared, you know, experiences through these dynamics. And, and sometimes enough, you know, I'm able to see, again, some of the sacrifices my dad, you know, went through as a spouse um, through their experiences. So it gives me a broader understanding of who my parents are, but also, you know, who caregivers are as a whole. I think you bring up a, a good point, though currently maybe you're in the minority. I think as, you know, our post 9-11 service members, as those children start to get older, they're going to be transitioning into the role like yourself. You know, I think we're going to see an upward trend on that just because, I mean, that, you know, 9-11 was only 21 years ago that I do think we're going to, we're going to start to see um, more of our military kids transitioning into adulthood and still being caregivers. So no, I think this is a great story. Yeah, of course. Susan, thank you so much again for having me and this conversation. You are extremely good at what you do and you, I just know you're a great soul. So you are very kind to say that. We'll include in the show's notes more information about the Elizabeth Dole Foundation and the Hidden Helper Coalition Initiative. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you enjoyed this episode, like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to leave us a comment to let us know the topics you want to hear more about. We'd like to thank again the Wounded Warrior Project, who sponsored this program to honor and empower post-9-11 injured service members, veterans, and their families. We hope you will support this episode by giving today's show a five-star rating. For more information about MSEC programs, go to militarychild.org. I'm Susan Sellers. Until next time, live a great story.